Howdy gamers! Welcome to the 5 by your source for rapid-fire board game reviews. In this episode, Sarah explores a story in Field Guide to Memory, Meeple Lady sails the ocean blue in fleet, I become a spy in Codenames, Luke meets fantasy creatures in Ethnos, and John revisits the classic card game of Cribbage. Here's Sarah. A Field Guide to Memory doesn't fit neatly into expected game categories. It's a solo RPG, a storytelling game, a journaling game, a creative writing exercise, an art project. Designers Jian Shim and Xing Ying Kor call it a keepsake game and a connected path game, terms that were coined for Field Guide to Memory. So what does that mean? A keepsake game is designed to produce a physical artifact through the gameplay process, something meaningful that players create themselves that they'll want to keep after the game ends. In a field guide to memory, the object is a journal, created based on daily prompts. Most prompts are simply to write something, but sometimes players are also encouraged to make simple drawings or do other things with the pages. So that's a keepsake game. Shim and Core also call field guide to memory a connected path game. That means the game is partly solitary and partly collaborative. You, the player, are writing the story of the game. The artifact you create is unique. But because each page is a response to that day's prompt, it's not totally open-ended. It's guided storytelling. Your creation is shaped by the prompt and will have elements in common with those of other players. This is a familiar concept if you've played legacy board games. You're creating a unique record of your playthrough within the framework provided by the game designers. The Field Guide to Memory campaign took place over four weeks. Each weekday morning in February, players received email prompts about what to write in their game journal. There were sometimes also prompts to take specific actions like go for a walk, look something up online, or listen to a specific sound. The journal comprised three parts, diary, correspondence, and field notes. Field notes because your character is the former assistant to Dr. Elizabeth Lee, a renowned cryptobiologist who devoted her career to searching for proof of the existence of the pronghorn desert rat. The event that kicks off the game is that after disappearing five years ago, Dr. Lee has been declared dead. In the game, you grapple with your memories of Dr. Lee, what she was like, what happened to her, what she meant to you and to others, and what her legacy means to you now. Field Guide to Memory takes place in a parallel world where cryptobiology, the study of mythical animals, is a respected field of scientific study. The daily prompts are fleshed out with a depth of realistic detail that makes this world feel not just vivid, but ordinary, normal. Shim is a naturalist and an outdoor educator, and it shows. I don't know how the game reads to an actual scientist who does work in the field, but for me, it was a fascinating look into a career that's miles apart from my own. The writing is excellent and painted such a picture of Dr. Lee and the fallout of her disappearance that I woke up every morning excited to get that email and find out what new wrinkle in the story would emerge that day. I played Shim's previous game, Wait For Me, and while I admired its ambition, I didn't always enjoy it. Wait For Me was about yourself, not a fictional character, and often it felt like the game was asking me to peel back a different trauma from my past every day. I'm happy to report that Field Guide to Memory is just as ambitious, just as original, but never uncomfortable the way Wait For Me often was. Because my character wasn't me. When I wanted to go deep, I could write about events and feelings that resonate with my own past. And when I wanted to keep it light, I could make something up that had nothing to do with me. The other collaborative element of Field Guide to Memory is that while the campaign was ongoing, players were encouraged to share their work on social media. 
I never did. To be honest, playing Wait For Me in a group had left me feeling so exposed that I wanted to work through Field Guide to Memory entirely by myself. But for those who did share their work and seek out the work of others, I'm sure that added another level to the story. The Field Guide to Memory campaign is over. Unfortunately, you can't get the experience of playing along in real time, getting the email with that day's prompt first thing every morning. But you can buy a PDF of the game from Gian Shim's itch.io page and play it at your own pace. The content is the same, you just don't get the daily emails. And if you really want that experience of doing the campaign day by day at the same time as everyone else, both designers have solo projects in the works for new keepsake games. Gian Shim's will launch on Kickstarter later this spring, and Xing Yin Kors is live on Kickstarter right now. It's called a mending. Two words, a mending and players can choose whether to play in a paper notebook or by sewing on fabric, an embroidery RPG. If you find that idea as thrilling as I do, don't wait. The campaign will be live for just a few more days after this episode drops. So, is Field Guide to Memory a game? Honestly, I don't think that question is all that relevant. It's a game as much as any RPG is a game. And I think that if you're the kind of person who gets hung up on whether something is a game or an activity, then you probably dislike my reviews in general, and you should maybe fast-forward over me, because I'm fascinated by, and I'm going to keep reviewing games like Field Guide to Memory. It's another confident step in Jian Shim's continued innovation in the RPG space. It's a storytelling exercise that's simultaneously solitary and communal. It's an act of creation. And more to the point, it's just fun. And that's Field Guide to Memory. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you know of other great solo journaling RPGs, then I really want to hear from you. Seriously, hit me up. I first encountered Fleet around 2013, early on in my jump into the board game hobby, and I absolutely did not care for it. Looking back, I probably didn't have a very good teacher, one that could have done a better job teaching the game, explaining slowly and methodically how multi-use cards work and how they get your fishing engine going. Those mechanisms were a lot to wrap my head around for a new gamer like me back then. Fast forward, seven years later, I was reintroduced to Fleet and I have to say, I absolutely love this game. I can't believe I lost so much time not playing this game and it's become one of my favorites to play online at BoardGameArena.com. Fleet, designed by Benjamin Pinchbank and Matthew D. Riddle, was published in 2012 by Eagle Griffin Games. The game plays about 2-4 to players and takes about 30-45 to minutes. It's an elegant engine-building card game in which players are acquiring fishing licenses, launching boats, and fishing off the Arctic Ocean. The game comes with fishing licenses, boat cards, and blue cubes that fit snugly into a box that's a bit larger than the size of a thick paperback. Expansions have since come out for the game, even a dice version, but this review is just about the base game. In Fleet, each round has five phases. License Auction launch boats and hire captains, fishing, processing and trading, and drawing cards. But before we talk about the phases, it's important to know about the anatomy of a boat card. Each card has one type of fishing boat, cod king, crab, shrimp tuna, lobster, or a processing vessel. The card also has a cost printed at the top left corner, coins printed on the bottom of the card, and lastly, victory points on the right side. The multi-use cards can be used for money to purchase fishing boats, which you'll have to pay its cost for. You can also see that as a boat is worth more victory points, it's worth less in terms of cash money. 
When the round begins, an equal number of fishing licenses are placed face-up and between players. The first player picks a license to bid on and begins the bidding process. The winner of the license pays the cost of the bid with the cards from their hand, and there's no change given if you overspend, and places a new license in front of them. The others can pick a new license to bid on for that phase or just pass completely. Each player can only successfully bid on one license during each auction phase, and each license is worth a certain number of victory points. In the next phase, players simultaneously launch boats and hire captains. To launch a boat, you may place one boat card face up in front of you, only if you have a fishing license of that type. For example, you can only place a tuna boat if you have a tuna fishing license. You must also pay for that boat card using cards from your hand that equal the boat card's cost. Lastly, you can also hire a captain for your boat simply by placing another card from your hand face down on top of that boat card. You can now see that every action requires a card from your hand, forcing you to manage your hand of cards well and to spend judiciously. You just can't do everything every turn. Next up is fishing. For every boat that you have face up in front of you that has a captain on it, a fish crate is placed on top of the card. Each fish crate is worth 1 VP, but each boat can only hold up to 4 fish crates. The next phase is processing and trading. If you own a processing vessel license, you can move one fish crate from another boat to the license. A player may then trade a fish crate for a boat card. Fish crates once processed are not worth VPs at the end of the game though. Lastly, everyone draws two cards from the deck and discards one. And now you can see how quickly your hand of cards depletes and how slowly it refills during a normal round. Rounds continue until there are not enough license cards to refresh the auction, or the supply of fish crates is depleted. And this amount changes depending on the number of players in the game. Players count up their victory points based on VPs listed on their license cards, launch boats, fish crates on launch boats, and bonuses from the King Crab licenses. The player with the most VPs wins the game. So that's the basic gist of Fleet. But where this game shines is how you create an engine in your play area that enables you to break some of the aforementioned rules and maximize your turns. Acquiring licenses gives you special abilities, and the more of each type of license you have, those abilities exponentially grow. For example, shrimp licenses give you a cash discount when you pay for items. Having one shrimp license gives you a coin discount, two will give you a two-coin discount, etc. But acquiring more licenses of any type requires more cash on hand, meaning having a full supply of cards in your hand, which is hard to do when you're trying to use those cards to buy licenses and launch ships and captains. You see the dilemma, right? The game is such a clever puzzle of hand management and engine building. Also, my absolute favorite part on this is the bidding. It's fun to raise the cost of a license just because you can, so you can prevent someone who already has multiples of that one particular license from acquiring it. Because having that third tuna license makes someone super duper powerful during card drawing, but you also really need that tuna license because all you have are tuna boats in your hand. And while sometimes someone can fall so behind in the game from poor decisions or not having enough cash to outbid anyone, fleet doesn't last too long for anyone to suffer too badly. And like they say, a bad day of board game fishing is better than a good day at work, am I right? And that's fleet. This is Meeple Lady for the Five by You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! If you've been in the board gaming hobby for the past several years, you might have had a chance to try Codenames, a word-based game that came out in 2015. If not, or if your copy has been languishing on your game shelf like mine during the pandemic, 
it might be a good time to revisit this classic in a new online format. But before I get to that, I'll go over some basics and some of the strengths that have made Codenames successful. You can also go back to episode 18 and listen to Mike's review of the two-player sequel to Codenames, Codenames Duet. Codenames is played in teams, ideally three or four players per team. It has a light spy theme, so the leader of each team is called a spy master. Everyone is looking at a 5x5 grid of cards with various words on them. The spy masters have a special key card that is coded with colors and shapes as a reference to tell them which words each team is trying to guess. It also indicates several neutral words that will end your team's turn if they are guessed, and one assassin card that will end the game immediately if it is guessed. The goal of the game is to be the first team to guess all of your words. Clues can only consist of one word that is related to the meanings of the words, plus a number that indicates how many words this clue applies to. Your team will be able to make a number of guesses that is one greater than the number you gave them, to allow for teams to return to earlier clues and make additional attempts if they want. The types of connections between words that spymasters can draw is limited only by their creativity and their team's ability to follow their line of thinking. The experience of being the spymaster versus being a field operative, in other words, one of the guessers, is pretty different, so in my opinion, an ideal session of codenames would allow for people to take turns being the spymaster and or shuffle teams so everyone gets a chance. But if there's someone who doesn't want to be in the limelight, they can be right at home making guesses too. I think Codenames bridges the gap between a strategic board game that involves critical thinking and decision making, and a party game that revolves around discussion and cooperation. The designer, Vlada Chvatil, is incredibly versatile with his designs, including games such as Dungeon Lords, Mage Knight, and Through the Ages. In other words, codenames is what happens when engaging design is applied to party games. The rulebook is only a few pages long, making it easy to dive in, especially if the spy masters have played before. Codenames is $20 or less in most places, and it doesn't require a huge amount of table space. Regarding the colors on the spy master key card, I consulted the accessibility teardown over at meeplelikeus.co.uk. They gave Codenames a strong recommendation in the colorblindness category because the grids are differentiated for all categories of colorblindness in addition to having shapes as a backup. Meeple Like Us also links to a spreadsheet tool that can be downloaded from BoardGameGeek that will automatically generate a grid of color-coded words for you to use, in case any players have trouble making that visual jump between the key card and the grid of cards on the table. That's available in the file section of the Codenames page, and it is by BGG user Helena underscore Poprad. So why would I be reminiscing about a game for so many players in the middle of an ongoing pandemic? There is a web implementation of Codenames created by the publisher, Czech Games Edition, and featuring the same art by Stefan Gantier, Tomas Kucherovsky, and Philip Mermak. You can find it online at codenames.game. It's free to use and doesn't require an account or password. To start a game, you just click a button that says Create Room and it will give you a custom URL to share. The URLs are very on brand for the game because they consist of three words rather than a string of characters. You can play either Codenames or Codenames Duet and it gives you some options for which word sets to use. The site does not offer its own text chat or audio chat, but you can get on Zoom or Discord or anything else to play the game. 
Once the game is set up, if you tell it that you are one of the two spy masters, the cards themselves will be color-coded, rather than having to refer to a key card off to the side. Players with varying types of colorblindness would need to be able to differentiate red, blue, beige, and black, as no shapes are used in the web version. Spy masters can enter their clues into the site, and they will display to all players, so you don't have to interrupt wayward conversations in order to give your clue. Field operatives make their guesses by clicking cards, and all clues and guesses are displayed in a game log off to the side. The site will guide you through the game and allow you to set up a rematch, shovel teams, etc. without setting up a new room. I've played both Codenames and Codenames Duet at Codenames.game and found it to be a very smooth experience. I think this would be great for folks who are dealing with pandemic fatigue and are looking for online gaming options that scratch that social itch. You can find me on Instagram at d6cmarie. Thanks for listening. Board gaming is a weird industry. I can think of no other design space where aesthetics, tactility, strategy, competition, and sociability occupy equal competing space and must be both mastered and balanced by the designers and publishers into a successful mix. That heady mix of factors also makes criticism frightfully easy get the balance wrong, at least in the eyes of your target audience, and no matter how nuanced your gameplay is, you'll get torn to shreds by the almighty internet. Simon has a very, very odd relationship with this balance. Grown from deep Ameritrash roots, for the longest time their modus operandi was to use giant piles of beautiful plastic and eye-catching aesthetics to gloss over mechanically mediocre games. So, it's a little strange when they get the balance so wrong in the opposite direction with Ethnos. Look, John Howe's career in fantasy art extends well beyond modern board games. He was one of two chief conceptual artists for Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies and has illustrated many of the fantasy genre's finest works. In the context of Lord of the Rings, Howe's illustrations in Ethnos would be lauded as stunningly appropriate and tone-perfect. In the context of an original board game property, however, it just becomes a bland Tolkien copy. Somehow he managed to knock off his own work. Most of the graphic design is passable but uninspired, right down to the game board that's nothing but a repainted map of Slovakia. The game components range from just okay to functionally terrible, like the stacking control tokens that are easy to knock around and, well, don't stack all that well. Ethnos just feels like a throwaway game for Simon which does a massive disservice to Paolo Mori's fantastic design. At its heart, Ethnos is a set collection area majority game. Your turn is simple. Either draw a card from the market or deck, or play a set of cards called a band. Playing a band allows you to deploy a control marker to one of six regions on the map in an attempt to score for majority at the end of each game's three eras. Three dragon cards are shuffled into the bottom half of the deck, and an era ends when the third one arrives. Two aspects make Ethnos unique. First, the card market is not replenished when cards are drawn. Instead, whenever you play a set from your hand, you have to discard every other card to the market. In games like Ticket to Ride, to which Ethnos is frequently and rightly compared, there's no penalty for hoarding. Here, every time you want to actually play the game, you agonize over what you're giving your opponents and then start from scratch on your next turn. This mechanism catches some flack from the board gaming community writ large. If players try to hoard cards for that one big play, the market will remain empty for quite some time, resulting in players repeatedly drawing from the deck rather than having a choice of face-up cards. 
At the end of each era, this can sometimes feel too random, but it also speeds the game along as it means the dragons come out faster. Second, each time you play, the deck is made up of six of the 12 included factions, each with a unique power. Minotaurs make your played band stronger, elves let you keep cards in your hand rather than discarding, wingfolk let you place your marker in any region, you get the idea. When you play a band, it must consist of cards all of one color or all of one faction, but you select one of the cards in the band to be the captain. If the band is all one color, that color determines the region where you place, and the captain's faction determines the special ability you use, the reverse being true for a multicolored band of all one faction. And that's pretty much it. Obviously, the faction abilities zhuzh the mix up a little bit, but the game is all about managing your hand, collecting sets, and controlling regions. At the end of an era, you'll score for control, as well as the sizes of the bands you've played, with faction abilities potentially adding more scoring opportunities. If this all sounds a little simplistic, well, it kind of is. I'd classify Ethnos as a gateway plus game. Familiar enough for Ticket to Ride players, but with a little extra junk in the trunk. And that's exactly what I love about Ethnos. It's not complex or overblown, it's got just enough punchy interaction to keep people invested, and it could fairly easily be taught to newer players who are still in their plastic trains or trading sheep phase. And it moves at a blistering pace. More than once I've been surprised that it's already my turn again, and we've played six-player games in around an hour. Oh yeah, it plays up to six players and does so pretty flawlessly. Ethnos is a perennial favorite in my game group, and a game I love so much I upgraded the crap out of it. And I mean that phrase pretty literally because, and I hate to say this, a good portion of Ethnos' components and aesthetic design are kinda crap. Simon messed up the balance of factors with Ethnos for sure, enough that I genuinely think it would have had a much wider audience with a better aesthetic treatment. But don't let the blandness turn you away from an otherwise stellar game. Ethnos is a keeper. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games on BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple, or on my website PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! Back in the beginning of 2020, my partner Lorena and I decided to take up a gaming challenge. A few months earlier, we had started playing cribbage, and so we decided that we would play cribbage every day for all of 2020. It seemed like an ambitious goal right off the bat. After all, 365 games of anything might be a bit much. We started off pretty strong, keeping up with our daily games, making up for days missed by playing two or three games on some nights. Then in March of 2020, well, we all know what happened then. Here in Los Angeles, a stay-at-home order came down and Lorena and I hunkered in to stay indoors whenever possible, and we played a lot of cribbage. So, how is cribbage played? Long esteemed by sailors and submariners, cribbage is played with a deck of cards and a cribbage board that is used to keep track of scores. Players each cut a card from a standard deck of playing cards and the player who cut the lowest card becomes the dealer. Six cards are then dealt to each player in a two-player game. Each player then privately keeps four cards for their own hand, adding the two other cards to the dealer's crib hand. The crib hand will come into play later. The non-dealer, or pwn in cribbage parlance, then randomly cuts the deck and the dealer reveals the top card which then becomes the starter card. The starter card will be used by both players when evaluating their hands in the latter part of the round, but I'll come back to that later. Players then take turns playing cards on the table, scoring points by completing or continuing runs and pairs. Players keep track of the total point value on the table when playing a card. So the non-dealer will play, let's say, a 7 of hearts. The dealer might then play a different 7, bringing up the count to 14, scoring 2 points for the pair. 
Players can also score points by being the first to bring the total value of the cards on the table to 15. So in the previous example, the non-dealer player might play a 1, so it doesn't matter here, bringing the total to 15, scoring 2 points. Players take turns playing cards from their hand until they can no longer do so because they've either run out of cards or can't play a card without raising the total card value on the table past 31. The last player to have placed a card scores a point, and if you manage to hit 31 right on the dot, you score two points, one for hitting 31 and one for playing the last card. Once players have played every card in their hand, the non-dealer player shows and counts the points in their hand. Runs of cards in sequential order score one point per card in the run. Pairs score two points, three of a kind will get you six points, and four of a kind nets you 12 points. Players also score two points for every 15 in their hand. It's also possible to score points for flushes. So a hand of 4, 4, 5, 6 with the starter card being a 3 would score a total of 14 points. And here's how that breaks down. 2 points for the pair of 4s, 4 points for the 3, 4, 5, 6 run. Another 4 points for the 3, 4, 5, 6 run with the second 4. 2 points for the 15 with the 4, 5, and 6. And 2 more points for the second 15 with the other 4. So when putting together their hands, players want to hold on to cards that will create runs, 15s, pairs, while sending trash cards to their opponent's crib. And sometimes in cribbage, the choices aren't always so clear, as you have to keep in mind your position on the cribbage board. After all, cribbage is a race to 121 points, and you might want to add cards to your opponent's hand that are less likely to give them points when they evaluate their crib hand, even if it means breaking up a hand that would give you a good chunk of points. Once players have played and showed their hands, the non-dealer player becomes the dealer and another round is played. The first player to peg 121 points wins the game. If all of this sounds a little confusing, well, it's kind of hard to convey cribbage in a 5 minute review. But hopefully this gives you a little taste of the game. There are some little rules and odd scoring mechanisms that I won't go into here. There's also a great app on iOS and Android called Cribbage with Grandpas from Less Than 3 Interactive that lets you create your own virtual grandpa to play cribbage with. What's great about the app is that you can have your grandpa be super helpful and they'll let you know that you've left points on the table. Or you can have your virtual grandpa teach you by claiming the points you've left on the table for themselves. Either way, Cribbage with Grandpa is a great way to exercise those scoring muscles. So how did Lorena and I do in our 2020 challenge? We hit a wall sometime in the summer. LA heatwaves and working from home made sitting at the dining room table slash work from home desk to play games a little bit less appealing. We ended up playing something like 200 games, not quite 365, but hey, that's still a lot of cribbage games. And yet, Lorena and I keep coming back to cribbage. It's a game we love to play during the weekend with some pan dulce and coffee. We love racing each other across the board, dealing with the hands we've been dealt, playing out cards and trying to outplay each other for points from pairs, 15s, and runs. And we've even started another 365 games of cribbage challenge for 2021. I'm fairly confident that cribbage is a game that will keep us entertained while we continue to stay at home and try to stay afloat during these turbulent times. I guess I see why Cribbage is a favorite of sailors and submariners. For the Five by I'm John Gonzalez. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as Book of Nerds. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Five by the fast and friendly podcast by people who love board games. You can follow us on Twitter at Five by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash five by games. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash five by games. Listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or visit our website, 5bygames.com. From all of us at the 5 Buy, thanks for listening. Listening.